You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. We'll be in the book of Ruth this morning, so if you have a copy of God's Word or access to it, if you'll turn there with me. If you're joining with us for the first time physically or Online, This is our fourth week in a series called Women of Advent, where we're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 1, the lineage of Jesus that's described there. And Matthew, in that lineage, describes five particular women in Jesus's line. So if you, if you want to go back and listen to some of those messages, we've covered Tamar, Bathsheba, and then last week, Rahab. By the way, I, I received the word... Uh, last week that Mark never introduced himself. And so if you were like, hey, I'm, I'm new to South Point and I've never seen this man before, that was Pastor Mark. Uh, he just, he's an inconspicuous kind of guy and uh, he just wanted to show up and preach and, and, and do his thing. And uh, that was Pastor Mark. He is, he's one of the pastors of our Locust Grove congregation and, uh, and really one of our founding pastors at South Point. But he and I had the opportunity to switch things up last week. So I preached in our Locust Grove congregation. I know he was a blessing um, to you here in McDonough. But for our, our reading of God's word this morning, let's turn to the end of the book of Ruth. We'll get to the conclusion of the story first. We'll head to the beginning and, and work our way back to the end again. So chapter four, uh, beginning in verse 13. If you're able, wherever you are, would you stand with me to honor God's word as it's read? Ruth chapter four beginning in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him a, a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Ruth is, it has to be one of my favorite books in the Bible, one of my favorite stories in all of scripture. And I, I've mentioned it before, but my wife and I were a part of a team that planted a church in Morrow, uh, just north of, of here about 10 and a half years ago. And we started that church going through a series on the book of Ruth, and we had no idea that God would use that particular study in our hearts to grow in our hearts a greater understanding of his sovereignty, his control over all things in order to prepare us for an extremely difficult next 10 months of church planting. Today, uh, we aren't going to spend a week after week after week going through the book of Ruth. We're going to actually look at it in one day. God redeems who you are 
to redeem how you live. And we'll see that in four various scenes throughout this book. Uh, First is in the land of Moab. Chapter 1, verse 1, if you'll get that back there with me. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Ruth. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, in that particular verse, we're told a lot there. We're roughly 1,000 years before Jesus Christ comes on the scene in, in human history, and we're in the time, the text tells us, when the judges ruled, which was this 100-year cycle of disobedience for the Jewish people. It was a, a really bad, really dark time. It was violent. It was a perverted time. In fact, the book of Judges says that during this time, the people of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. Side note, uh, this coming Thursday, Christmas Eve, we're going to wrap up our Women of Advent series. And so next Sunday, uh, since we've been in the book of 1 John for uh, many months, we're actually going to do 2 John this coming Sunday. The Sunday after that, which is the first Sunday of the year, we'll do 3 John. We'll do a four-week series on discipleship. And then beginning in February, uh, which is kind of an ironic thing, the love month, uh, we're going to start going over the book of Judges, okay? So be prepared for that. Uh, We'll look at the book of Judges Uh, I thought that was appropriate to tell you that at this time, since Ruth is happening during the time of the judges, but that begins in February. Anyways, without having more context, the time of the judges was a really bad time. You've got that, okay? Uh, Not only that, verse 1 says that there was a famine. Now, a fun fact for you uh, that will come in handy at some point today and maybe later for us is that Bethlehem, anybody know what that means before I say it? Yes, Bethlehem means house of bread. Now, the irony here, if you already see it in the text, is that there's no bread in the bakery, right? There's, there's a famine going on in this land. Like one time I, I pulled up at Wendy's. Uh, I, I feel like I always have fast food analogies. I, I pulled up one time at Wendy's, and uh, it, it was years ago, and I asked for a Frosty. And they said, hey, uh, all we have is vanilla. Is that okay? I was confused. I, I asked for a Frosty, right? We, we all know what that name means. It, it means chocolate, chocolate Frosty. No, vanilla is not okay. This, this isn't what it's supposed to be. Bethlehem didn't have bread. It's not following after its name. So get that. A man named Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, they move out of Bethlehem, out of the house of bread that was having a famine during that time, and they move to a place called Moab, which is about a seven or ten day walk. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details here, uh, but just want you to get some context for what Moab is, how Moab came to be. You remember Abraham's nephew. What was Abraham's nephew's name? Lot. Now, Lot was living in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was a terribly wicked city. So there is this point in the biblical narrative that Lot and his family are fleeing that city because it's being destroyed because of their rampant wickedness, and his wife looks back, and she turns into a what? Pillar of salt. 
That is really in the Bible. And, and that's the lot that I'm talking about. Well, the story gets even crazier right after that because Lot and his two daughters go and hide out for a time in a cave. And the daughters knew that there was no hope for them. There was no one to continue on their line. They wouldn't be finding husbands anytime soon. So they devised a, a plan. And soon they were pregnant with their own brothers. And I'll let you figure that one out. But the, the firstborn daughter bore a son and his name was Moab. So I just want you to hear the full story of how we get to Moab. Moab starts in a wicked place and it is a bad place. Moab has terrible beginnings. It's a horrible place. In verse 15, we also see, chapter 1, that it's a country that worships pagan gods. They don't serve the same God of the Israelites. And here in Moab, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he dies. So they go there for safety, they go there for protection, and really they go to Moab for food, and now Naomi's source of all of those things is no more. Her husband, Elimelech, is dead. Now her sons take Moabite wives, women as wives, and their names are Orpah and Ruth. Now, another fun fact, this, this is the last fun fact this morning, but Oprah Winfrey was originally named Orpah. Now, I, saw, I found that on Wikipedia, so I don't know how true that is, but apparently people kept uh, calling her Oprah. They, they weren't saying Orpah, and she eventually had it legally changed to Oprah. So that, that's interesting. Um, this is an incredibly devastating five verses, though, because Malon and Kilion, after being married for 10 years with no children, they die. And so Naomi wants to head back to Bethlehem because she hears that the famine has ended and she tells her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab. Hey, this is the only place that you're going to have protection is for you to stay with your families. There's at least a little bit of hope here. There's no way that Naomi can care for these ladies. She couldn't have any more children. And even if she did, they wouldn't bear to wait for her sons to come of marrying age so that they could then marry new sons and have children. She says, you got to go back. And so Orpah agrees to stay back in Moab, but Ruth clings to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she makes this incredible statement beginning in verse 16. Look there in chapter 1, verse 16. It says this, do not urge me, Ruth says, to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. If God is moving you, Ruth says, he's moving me as well. And as I was reading through this text this past week, it hit me what a powerful statement this is that Ruth makes. Many of us, if we're familiar with the Bible at all, you've heard this over and over again. This is one of those critical statements in this book, but it's, it's a beautiful statement. It's like the heart's desire of every Christian parent. Like when your faith as a parent moves from being observed only, but it's now professed and adopted by your children themselves. It's an incredible, it's an incredible moment in the story, really. So Naomi makes the trek back to Bethlehem. She's with Ruth now, but she's left. She's left 
without a husband, and she does not have any sons. Now she's a widow, and she has a widow for a daughter-in-law with her. And as a result, Naomi, the text says, she wants a name change. She doesn't want to be known as Naomi, sweet any longer. She now wants to be known as bitter. She wants people to call her Mara, for the Almighty, she says, has dealt bitterly with her. She went away full, and the Lord brought her back empty, she says in verse 21. Now, Naomi's family had moved to Moab to avoid death and destruction, but that's actually exactly what happened to them. As we wrap up scene one, a couple of thoughts. First is this, pain is one of the most effective means of grace in the life of a Christian. I don't want you to miss that this morning. Pain is one of the most effective means of grace in the life of a Christian. And here's what I mean by that. As you and I, in the family of God, grow in our understanding of who God is, the more we will see that the hardships that we endure in this life are to be productive in our very sanctification. That's what it's for. If we, if we endure difficulties and we have pain in our life, they are to be for our sanctification. They are to conform us into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. Circumstances, even painful ones, should serve to produce in us tremendous joy and satisfaction in the God who's over them. So the question before us as the family of God this morning is, how is God using your pain for good in your life? How is God using your pain for good in your life. And the second is this, bitterness is a heart issue. Bitterness is a heart issue. I think we'd like to believe as Christians that bitterness is circumstantially, circumstantial only, that these things have happened to me, these things have occurred to me or with me or I've been a part of those things and so I'm just bitter about that particular thing or I'm just a bitter person. But bitterness is actually rooted in the heart. Bitterness, you see, is pride. Its mantra sounds like, I don't deserve to have bad things happen to me. I deserve much better than this. I deserve much better than this lot in life. Everyone else I know has this and this and this going for them, but I have much less. Don't you know my life, the things that have occurred to me, bitterness is a hard issue. We, we often think my circumstances are always much worse than someone else. Bitterness distrusts the character of God. And listen, we shouldn't be out to get Naomi in this. We hear that she's been dealt a very bitter and difficult hand, and so we think, man, why in the world are you reacting that way? She's literally had the deck stacked against her. I feel in this moment a need to show a little grace because we're on day eight of having no hot water because a gas valve had to be ordered and it still isn't here. Uh, and I could have driven to North Carolina at some point during the week if I would have known that it was going to take this long. Um, but I'm wondering right now how long it's going to be before the Lord Jesus himself returns, right? Like that's, that's, that's the circumstance that I find myself in, and it's so easy. In this moment, it's like, how in the world could anyone live without hot water? But people have done that for like millennia, right? It's going to be okay, Chris. You're going to make it just a little longer. Brother and sister, if bitterness has taken root in your heart, run to Christ. Cling to him. Cling to him. 
Okay, I need, to, I need to pick up our pace. Scene two, in the field of Boaz. Now, Naomi and Ruth are back in the city of Bethlehem. They're getting settled into their, their new digs, and Ruth needs to go out and get some food for her family. Remember, they, they don't have anything. They're getting to this place, and, and, now, and now Ruth is the only person that Naomi has, and so she's got to go do something for the family. They have nothing. But thankfully, there are some laws that protect those that don't have much in this place, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19, describes it like this. When you reap your harvest, it happens that Ruth goes to the field to glean of a man named Boaz. Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. Elimelech was Naomi's husband. Now, this isn't all peachy. It's not a nice area of the fields. In fact, it's extremely dangerous. You don't, you don't know who's lurking out in the fields waiting for the vulnerable. But thankfully, Boaz, a relative of Naomi's, takes notice of Ruth. And he wants more information on her. Who is she? Where does she come from? And after finding out, he has Ruth go out with the other women for safety and protection and ensures that the young men keep her hydrated and keep their hands off of her. Now, look at verse 20 of chapter two with me. Chapter two, verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law in regards to Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, with, these, with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Now again, Boaz is a relative of Elimelech's. Just like in the story of Tamar, if you remember, there is a provision for women that have been widowed, leveret marriage. And a, a family member would have the responsibility to take them as a wife, provide for them, and continue their line. Now, Boaz can be this kinsman redeemer for Ruth. So Ruth has this job in Boaz's field for the rest of the harvest, six or seven weeks, and we don't see much of anything else happen. Now, I want you to think about something. It hasn't been explicitly stated, but we can clearly see the hand of God working in all of these little details, right? It's, it's not coincidental that Ruth just happens upon this man's field that happens to be a relative of Naomi who happens to be able to, to redeem Ruth. Despite what, it, what is a terrible tragedy in the life of Ruth and Naomi, God is working. He's planned for protection. He's planned for provision. And the question that we must ask ourselves is why do we so often doubt the providence of God in our lives? Like we look at all the circumstances again and we say, man, God hasn't come through. He, he's, not, he's not helping me in these details. He's not figuring these things out. And all the while, he's working in 10,000 different ways so that you would be provided for, so that you would be protected. Scene three on the threshing floor of Boaz. Chapter three, Naomi decides to move on to the next step of this process. As though, again, the Lord hasn't orchestrated all of the events up to this point, right? 
Naomi wants to keep pushing things along. Hey, I gotta, I gotta take care of things. So verse one, she says to Ruth there in the text, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it might, might be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, Naomi has asked or told her daughter-in-law, we're not exactly sure, some of you who would say, yeah, if my mother-in-law asks me to do something, I know exactly what I should be doing, right? That, that's what's happening in this very instance. Naomi has asked Ruth to go and meet Boaz to do something rather provocative. She's, she's to tell Boaz of her intentions, essentially. She wants care. She wants a family line. Now, Boaz is winnowing that night. Then he has his fill of food and, he, and drink, and then he lies down at the end of a heap of grain, verse 5 says. And Ruth comes in softly in the scene, and he uncovers his feet and lies down at his feet, verse 8, chapter 3. At midnight, the man was startled, and he turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you're a redeemer. Now, besides being startled, just reading this at a cursory level, we think, why is this not more of a big deal, right? There is someone laying at this man's feet at midnight, and he just seems startled, right? This, 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 this is crazy, in the middle of the night. And then he, he just keeps going. He says, yes, I'm a redeemer. But there's actually a family member that is closer in line than me. So, what do we have to do? They have to follow protocol. Tomorrow morning, we'll see if he'll redeem you. And if he does, so be it. If not, Boaz will redeem her. So that morning, he gives Ruth some barley and he sends her on her way. Now, the fourth and final scene. And we really begin at the town gate and the redeemer that is closer than Boaz to Naomi comes by. Now again, if God is not all in the details of this story, orchestrating every single event. The, the redeemer that is closer to Naomi than Boaz just happens to walk by this gate. I love the divine coincidences in this book. Boaz is like, oh, hello. Why don't you sit beside me? Come, come sit beside me here. And then he's like, oh, hey, um, there, there are 10 other prominent men in the city. Could, could you guys sit down over here as well? Boaz begins to explain the situation to the family member in verse 3. Naomi, he says, who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would, I thought I would to you of it and say, but it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. But if you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. Now, this family member that is closer in line than Boaz says, yeah, sure, I'll redeem the land. And Boaz says, okay, but one more thing. Uh, if you redeem the land, there's also a woman that comes alongside of it. Ruth also comes with this deal. Verse five, and she's a widow, and this is in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in your inheritance. And the family member is like, oh, okay, um, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to second guess that deal. I, I don't think that buying the land and acquiring this land is going to be in my best interest. It's going to tie up some of the inheritance that's already due to me. So never mind. I cannot redeem it. Take my right of redemption yourself. And so the relative takes off his sandal as was custom. Just take it for what it is, right? And I, I was thinking, man, we really, uh, we really haven't moved much beyond that except becoming a little more sanitary with the pinky promise. But, but that's, that's what happens in this moment. He just takes off his sandal and the deed is done here. And Boaz buys the parcel of land to which the elders become witnesses. And then check out verse 11, chapter four. The witnesses give this blessing. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel, May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And let's keep going where we began earlier this morning. Go to 4.13 with me. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. God provided much more than Naomi could have ever imagined. Not only did Ruth marry Boaz, but the Lord gave them a son. And as she holds her son, Ruth offers this praise to God while speaking to Naomi in verse 14. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. But it gets better. Look at verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz in our story. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now jump over to Matthew chapter one with me where we've been throughout this series. Matthew chapter one. You'll see in verses three through six that what we just read is repeated there. A little more is added in verses six through 14, and then we pick up in verse 15. Matthew chapter one, verse 15, in the middle of the lineage. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. When it seems like God is work, when when God isn't working, when it seems like God is silent. All the while, God is working to redeem Ruth and Naomi. Ruth had absolutely no idea that her life of service would result in her being the great-grandmother of King David, who would be the ancestor of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. She had no idea that God was working out the details in her life to see that the Redeemer of the world would be coming through her very line. And it is in that Messiah, Jesus Christ, that we realize that God has not left us, you, without a redeemer either. God is writing a story hidden in the details to so many of us to redeem the entire world. I'm thankful 
as we look at this story of Ruth, as we, as we see these other characters dispersed throughout Naomi, I'm thankful that the bitterness of Naomi's heart couldn't thwart or change the redemptive plan of God. That's comforting to me too, one who often falls into sin, one who often falls into bitterness, thinking that my circumstance can't possibly get any better, that this can't possibly serve in the mission of God in any way. Thankfully, Naomi's bitterness couldn't thwart or change the redemptive plan of God. And I'm thankful that God, in his mercy, saw a bitter, rebellious, sinful people and sent his perfect son as a redeemer, a rescuer that we might have a, a way back into right fellowship and relationship with God. And here's the deal. No matter how messed up your interpretation of God's providence has been in your life, don't miss this, that God has provided a way for you, a sinful human being, to be made right with him, a holy and perfect God. And he's done it through his son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life that you and I could not live. He died a death that you and I deserve to die because of our sin debt. The way that we were born into this world from our mother's womb, he died a death that you and I deserve to die. And he rose again on the third day, proving that he conquered an enemy, sin and death, that we could not. And it is in Jesus Christ alone that you and I find redemption. God's providential working in your life, it may never include some of the things that you hope for most in this life. It, it, it may never include the provision that you've actually been looking for. It may never include the way that you saw your life going. It may not include the spouse that you so desperately desire. It may not include the job that you have been hoping for. It may never include some of the things that you hope for most. But do not leave here this morning without knowing that it does absolutely include the most important thing. And that's the opportunity to be reconciled with your loving heavenly father. To forgive you, the scripture says, you're Christian. If you've been misinterpreting God's providence in your life, unable to rest in the midst of your pain or your plans, unable to give God the praise that is due his name, would you take this moment to offer a prayer of confession and repentance? Would you just take a moment as we close, remember that the hard hand of God that we often see is so visible to us. It doesn't have to produce bitterness in you and that he uses even the most normal people at the most insignificant times to bring about great good and his redemptive purposes. Whoever you are, man, woman, rich, poor, black or white, wherever you come from, whatever your city you're from, whatever country you're from, you can be used by God in a mighty way. God redeems who you are to redeem how you live. Your life as a redeemed, as redeemed is to be a testimony of your redeemer. That's who you and I have the opportunity to be as the redeemed children in this very world. We get the opportunity to shine 
as a city on a hill, to a light, to a world that is in utter darkness, we have the opportunity to be light. God has given us that ability. You don't live as your own, as the children of God. You were bought at a price. You have been literally bought back. You've been redeemed by Christ Jesus. Your days, hear this, easy or difficult, are to be lived to point to him, the redeemer and his glory. That's the point of your life. And so if you've been thinking at any at all that your life has has been used to serve you and your purposes, you've misunderstood your plan in the purposes of God. Your life is to be a reflection of the Most High God. Your life is to be an instrument in the Redeemer's hand. Your time, whether it is free or very filled, is to be given to God to be used for him and by him for his purposes. Your energy, whether you have a ton of it or just a little of it, is to be directed toward his kingdom and his kingdom purposes. And your pain, even as we saw in the book of Ruth, is to point you to a longing of Christ's return. We long for the day that Christ would return to redeem his bride completely, fully, and finally. We long for the day that all these things would be made right. We long for the day that we would be able to worship our God freely and fully. And that is the season that we find ourselves in, that is Advent. We wait for the Lord's second return. We know that he has already come once and that he is sure to come again. God redeems who you are to redeem how you live. Let's pray. Before that, as I mentioned just a minute ago, if if you've been misinterpreting God's providence in your life, finding it really difficult to rest in the midst of your pain, finding it really difficult to rest in the middle of your plans, unable to give God the praise that is rightfully due his name, Would you just take a moment to offer a prayer of confession and repentance before him? And then I'll close this in just a moment. Just spend time before your heavenly father in prayer. Father, we as your people, we come together today corporately worshiping you and your name as you rightly deserve. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Christ Jesus, who emptied himself of the glory that was his in heaven, that was displayed, that was poured out on him, and he came to earth as as a baby, as a poor baby, in a poor man's house. And he lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all righteousness according to your law. And he died a death 
at the hands of angry, wicked, bitter men and women. And in his death, he died so that anyone who would trust in Christ Jesus could have forgiveness of sins by faith. Father, we as your children in this, moment, in this morning are recipients of that forgiveness by faith, and we as your children say thank you. God, we would ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us rightly interpret the events of our life, whether they be painful, whether they be full with happiness, whether they be seasons filled with joy or they be seasons filled with sadness. God, our desire as your children is to reflect you, to be instruments in your hand, recognizing that we have been put here on this earth at this time for you and your purposes. Help us by your spirit, we pray, to make you known to this world. And God, we pray that you would increase the longing in our hearts for the coming of Christ Jesus again. And not in a superficial way, not in a way that I've already recounted in, in thinking sinfully that my circumstances have already gotten the best of me so that I just need the Lord Jesus to, to come back again. But longing in the sense that we absolutely desire to worship you fully for all eternity. God, help your children. Help us now to worship you. It's in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.